Okay, <clears throat> so today we're going to be talking about salvation. All right, so last week we talked about redemption accomplished, right? The atonement, everything that Jesus did to win for us freedom from sin and uh, Satan and the enemy. Uh, this week we're going to talk about how that redemption is applied to us. Um, now we're going to cover many things. Like I said, there are nine, I believe, nine stages um, of, of salvation, I guess you could say, that we're going to discuss. And also, like I said, I mean, I'm giving you, we're giving you guys a 30,000 foot view of each one of these entire books, entire seminary courses, you know, have been written over each individual one of these topics that we're going to be talking about. Okay. So we are not by any means exhaustively covering every single one of these issues. Um, but we are going to cover them. Now, as we do this, as we talk through these things, um, there are one of two um, reactions that I think people in this room are going to have. Okay, As we talk about salvation, there are some of us in here that are going to be like, you know what? Yeah, that's me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes, I understand that. Yeah, th that has happened to me. And there may be some of us in here that we talk about these things and it, they're foreign confusing, you know, what, like maybe make you feel a little uneasy. Like, you know, I don't know. Um, embrace each one of those feelings. If, if the things that we talk about cause you to rejoice and to give you assurance and to give you confidence, rejoice in that. Okay. And revel in that. But if the things that we talk about, you say, man, you know, I don't know if that's me. I, I, I don't know. Don't, don't just sit there or avoid it. Okay. Push into that. And, and, and pray for the Lord to reveal to you exactly why that may not be you. Now, um, I am not talking about our reactions to the doctrine of election. Okay? <laughs> I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is just the doctrine of salvation, period. Okay? Because we're going to cover a lot of things. Um, so lean into those reactions that you're feeling. Now, election. Okay? In light of that, I understand. Listen. It is not lost on me that this is a controversial issue. I understand that. And, you know, there, there's an age-old saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Um, and, and, and I know when it comes to that issue, when it comes to that topic, it can be very divisive. And it can be very, um, it can be very tense to discuss that. Um, but we are going to discuss it, okay? And what I want what I want you to say, what I want you guys to understand is that I, I understand, okay, how wherever you fall on the issue for or against, I understand, okay, and and I've been there. I've been on both sides, okay, um, and but this does not need to cause division amongst our body. Division amongst the body is something that is constantly condemned in the scriptures. It is constantly um, talked badly about um, by God. He hates that. He hates division amongst the body. Okay, so listen, we can we can disagree on things and we can have fruitful, healthy conversation about it. And, and I think everybody here will will do just that. But I listen in the climate that we live in with this issue. I have to preface that this with that. Okay, so. We're going to be talking about the order of salvation. Sometimes you see it referred to as ordo salutis. It's just a Latin term that means order of salvation. So if you ever see ordo salutis, that's what we're talking about. Now, 
we're, we're looking through these chronologically, okay? And what I mean by chronologically is, I mean, if we're looking through the history of redemption, okay? Redemption past, redemption future, we're going to look at each one of these as they apply to us chronologically. So first thing we're going to talk about is election. God's choosing of who would be saved before the foundations of the earth. And we're going to look at the effectual call. This is something that God issues through the preaching of the gospel, right, that we preach. This is an effectual call that reaches us, that allows us to... Um, uh, experience regeneration, right? This is, this is a quickening of the spirit within us. And then at that moment, we are freely able to choose, okay, yes, I will follow Christ. I will have faith and I will repent. That is conversion. We're going to look at that. Upon our conversion, we are considered justified before the Lord. We are adopted into his family. And then we embark upon a journey called sanctification. That's where all of us are at right now. Okay. We're in the process of sanctification, becoming more like Christ. Um, Perseverance is the overwhelming confidence that we have that we know that we will persevere until the end. So we're going to talk about things like eternal security, once saved, always saved, if, you, if you've heard that term before. And then we're going to conclude with a discussion of glorification. This is after we die, when we are resurrected into new bodies and we are made to be like Christ fully, completely free from sin. Um, beautiful, beautiful. And I can't wait to get there. So to begin... Election. Now, here's the definition of election. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Now, now, there are a plethora of scriptures that speak to this issue. Again, whole books written on this, but we're going to look at a few select scriptures, Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of God. The word of God had just been preached to them by Peter. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed there was an ordination. They were ordained by God before the foundation of the earth to inherit eternal life. And all of those people that before the foundation of the earth, God had chosen beforehand when the word came to them, they believed because it was ordained by God that they would believe. We see this as well in Ephesians 1 verses 4 through 6. God, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. First Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5. For we know, brethren beloved by God, that he has chosen you. For our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now notice how Paul says that it is because they responded to the gospel in power, that the gospel took root and took effect in their lives. They didn't just hear it and turn around and walk away. It was because they believed in the gospel that Paul says, hey, now we know you were chosen by God because our gospel came to you in power. It wasn't fruitless us preaching to you. That's the connection that Paul makes there. And we see this as well. Second Thessalonians 2.13. Paul gives thanks to God. He says, we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So th these are just a few verses, but but... 
all throughout the New Testament. Once you are made aware of this, you see it everywhere. I mean, it is all over the place. God's choosing of who would receive salvation. Now, a common objection to this is that, okay, look, I understand that the Bible talks about predestination. I understand that the Bible talks about election, but, um, I don't agree with the whole thing that it was just completely based upon on his will. I think that God looked ahead and he saw who would have faith in him, and that's who he chose to be saved. But, guys, that is not the case. That is not the case. Romans 9 shows us this. This is talking about Jacob and Esau. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, She was told the elder will serve the younger as it is written. Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. Now I understand that that, that's tough, but what happens is you see Jacob is the one who inherits the promises of God. And through his seed, that is what happens. Esau sold his birthright, right? But this was determined before either one of them were born before either one of them had done anything good or anything bad. It was solely based upon God's good purpose so that his purpose of election might continue. It wasn't because Jacob had faith or Esau did something bad. It says not because of anything that they had done, but only because of God's perfect will and election they were chosen. And we see this idea again, Second Timothy 1.9, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not in virtue of our works, but in virtue of his own purpose and the grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus ages ago. So what we understand election to be is that election is the biblical teaching that before the foundation of the world, God, according to his good pleasure, not upon us having faith in him, not not upon based upon anything that we would have done. He simply chose. He elected certain people to come into knowledge of salvation in Jesus Christ. So that is where our salvation begins is before the foundations of the earth. If you are in Christ, it is because God knew you before the foundation of the earth and he chose you to do so. So after election, um, we, we um, come into the effectual call. Now, those whom he predestined, Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Okay, so all those who he chose before at some point in their life, he called them. He called us. He called you. He called me, right? And those whom he called, he also justified. We're going to get to justified here in just a second. So after we are elected at some point in our life, the next thing that happens is we receive the effectual call. Effective calling is an act of God the Father speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. We see this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is God who does this calling. He calls us into fellowship with Christ. And we see this here, John six forty four. The, the words of Jesus himself. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You cannot come to Christ unless there is an initial calling by God on his behalf. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, the, if, you, if you take a, like a, a, 
If you take all of the mentions of this kind of calling, God calling in the New Testament, you can kind of summarize them in this. It is a very powerful thing that God does. When God calls people in this powerful way, he calls them out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2.9. He calls them into the fellowship of his son, 1 Corinthians 1.9 and Acts 2.39, and into his own kingdom and glory. People who have been called by God belong to Jesus Christ. They are called to be saints, and they have come into a a realm of peace, freedom, hope, holiness, patient endurance of suffering, and eternal life. Every single one of these scripture references here speak of this is what God has called us into. This calling that God has placed upon us results in every single one of these things happening in our life. Effective calling um, is distinguished from the actual gospel call that, that we issue, but the effective call includes our gospel call that we present to the world. You cannot have an effectual call without the gospel call, but the two are different, right? And we see this um, a couple places in Scripture. Second Thessalonians 2.14, To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through our preaching of the gospel that this effective call works. Okay, That is the means by which God has said he would call people to himself is through the preaching of the gospel. And we see Paul explain this in Romans chapter 10, especially in verse 14. He says, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? It's a rhetorical question, and he's saying that they can't. People cannot believe in Jesus Christ if they have not heard of them. And then he says, how can they hear unless there is someone sent to preach to them? That's what, that's what Paul's argument continues to go. So, so people cannot be saved apart from Jesus Christ, and people cannot be called to Christ apart from the preaching of the gospel. It doesn't happen. God's effectual call works tandem with our preaching of the gospel. And that we must preach the gospel in all of its fullness. All people have sinned. The penalty for their sin is death. Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins. And it is only through faith and repentance that we can be saved, that we can be entered into that. Now, the gospel call, the gospel call that we issue, right? That's general. That's external. That's broad, right? And there are people who regularly reject that, right? But this effectual call, God calling somebody, that's irresistible. That will always produce the result that God wants. He pinpoints through our gospel message certain people, and he calls them, right? That's something that always happens. So, so far in the order of salvation, we understand that God has chosen us before the foundation of the earth to be saved. At some point in our lives, he issues us an effectual call. Um, and upon that effectual call, we experience regeneration. Regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts a new spiritual life to us. This is sometimes referred to in the New Testament as being born again. If you remember the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John 3, he says that over and over, you must be born again, you must be born again, you must be born again. He's saying your spirit must be regenerated. Now we see the teaching of this in New Testament, Ephesians 2.5. Even when we were dead... In our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is regeneration. God making you alive even though that you're dead. Colossians 2.13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. He made you alive. You catch that. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Now, 
This regeneration that occurs, this usually happens in conjunction with the preaching of the gospel, right? And, and there are at least two passages in the New Testament that show this to us. First one is in First Peter chapter 1, verses 23 and 25. You have been born anew, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. That word is the good news which was preached to you. So he is saying, like, look, through my preaching of the gospel, you were born again, right? So through the preaching of the gospel, an effective call was issued to you, and you were regenerated. You were born again. And we also see this is an amazing passage here, James chapter 1, verse 18. He chose to give us birth, to give us new life, to give us regeneration through the word of truth. I mean, it doesn't get more clear than that. It is through the word of truth that this regeneration comes. This regeneration is something that happens because of God's effectual call. But notice that I said that this usually happens in conjunction with the preaching of the gospel. Sometimes it doesn't. John chapter 3 verse 8, the wind blows where it wills and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know from where it comes or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Now, regeneration is an instantaneous event. It happens like that. It is something pointed and singular that happens in our life. Um, but the apparent impact of that regeneration or the evidence of it, it may not be um, so apparent. And that's different with each person. You know, think of like children who have, who have grown up in the church. You know, their parents have, have steadily shared the gospel with them. They've been raised in the doctrines of, you know, there may not be some just aha, amazing, incredible moment. It could just be this gradual process as people mature in their understanding of the gospel and then regeneration occurs along the way and then you may not can necessarily pinpoint it. You know, there are many people, I'm sure there's probably people in this room that say, you know what, I don't know exactly when I got saved. All I know is that it happened at some point. <laughs> I'm a believer now, you know, but there was no amazing thing. My regeneration was was like this. It was separated from my even hearing the gospel and understanding it and receiving it. So like I'm in my friend's driveway, right? And, and they start praying and I'm, I'm not a believer. I mean, I'm a devout atheist, right? Um, and so I'm letting them do their thing, sit out to the side. They invite me to pray and I'm like, okay, whatever. I don't know why I'm doing this, but okay. And I go and I bow my head and I just begin weeping. Um, I was hit right then with my depravity, right? I knew that I was just a bad person. I didn't understand God. I didn't know. I wasn't pursuing God or anything like that in this moment. I just felt like a bad guy and I just started weeping, right? But through, and then they prayed for me, right? They laid their hands upon me and then they prayed for me. And then leaving that experience, I was a different person, okay? The things that I liked before, I hated. And the things that I hated before, I found myself eerily being drawn to. Right. And so for like a week, I'm just like walking around like, man, what what is wrong with me? Like, no, I don't want to do that. And yeah, you know, I do want to go to church with you. You know, it was it was really, really weird. And then I go to church. Right. And I talk to uh, my friend's dad, who is now my uncle in law, Haley's uncle. Um, he was the pastor of that church. And I said, man, I don't know what's going on. And I was just explaining this to him. And his ass got this big right here. He said, I'll tell you what happened to you. And then he sat me down and he explained to me the gospel. This is a week from this experience, right? A whole week I've been a completely different person. And as he's explaining these things, okay, yes, 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 yes. I understand. That, that makes perfect sense. I know that this is what has happened to me. Um, and so at that moment, right, I had been elected before the foundation of the earth by God to receive salvation. God had 
issued me an effectual call in what um, Pastor Don was telling me, okay? He, he was drawing me to himself. I had been regenerated, okay? And after he got done explaining all this to me, I responded to this gospel message that he sh- gave to me in repentance of my sin and faith towards God, and I experienced conversion at that moment. Conversion is our, our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of our sins and we place our trust in Christ for salvation. That is when conversion occurs. Now, conversion is different than regeneration. Regeneration is when you are made alive in your spirit so that you can respond to the gospel, right? If you are completely dead in your sins and you are a dead person, it doesn't matter how loudly I yell the gospel at you. You are not going to respond. Regeneration has to occur before we can respond in repentance and faith. That is what happens. Regeneration occurs. We respond in repentance and faith, and we are converted in that moment. Remember Romans 10, 14. How can they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Right? Um, What this shows us is that knowledge, so so faith, right? The faith that we respond with, knowledge is, is, is a part of that. Knowledge is required. We, if we're going to respond in faith, we have to understand who Christ is, right? So how can they believe in him who they have not heard? If you don't know who Jesus is, you cannot respond in faith, right? Now there's, um, but, but listen, when it comes to faith, knowledge about Christ and knowledge about the gospel and knowledge about God, that's not enough. That, 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 that's, that's not enough. I mean, we, we understand that, you know, even the demons believe, right, in God, and they shudder. So it's obviously not enough to save us, Romans one thirty-two, Though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die. This is people who are committing idolatry he's talking about. Though they know that, they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but approve of those who practice them. So just knowledge of God, knowledge that he exists, knowledge of his law, knowledge of the gospel, knowledge of Christ is not enough to save anybody. That faith that you have has to consist of more than knowledge, right? Knowledge of the gospel and even approval of it. Yes, okay, the gospel is true. Even that is not enough. Check this out. In John 3, 2, Nicodemus, remember, he comes to Jesus Christ in the middle of the night because he wants to learn more about what Jesus is teaching. And Nicodemus says, Jesus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But so we have Nicodemus here who is acknowledging who Christ is. He knows who Jesus is and he approves of him. Hey, you have got to be from God. Nobody can do what you do apart from God being with him. But in this moment, Nicodemus is not a believer. He does not have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. We have hints later on that he does because he's one of the people that helps bury Jesus Christ. Um, he's one of the help, people that helps carry his body off. Um, but in this moment, he is not. He is not a believer. And th- there's another hint of this um, in Acts 26, 27. Um, actually, you know what? Go back. I don't have that slide in here. I'll get to that in a second. Um, so King Agrippa, right? Um, King Agrippa um, is the king Paul is brought before him to be tried, right? And Paul starts sharing the gospel with King Agrippa. And King Agrippa, he's just kind of like, yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. And then Paul says to King Agrippa, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. I know that you believe the prophets. I know that you believe what they say. Yet by 
Agrippa's own admission later on, this was not a, a, a saving belief that he had. He said, well, are you trying to make me a Christian? Not going to happen, buddy. That was Agrippa's response. So knowledge of who Christ is, right? And even approval of what he has done is both of those things do not make up the saving faith that is required for us to be saved in our conversion, right? It, saving faith includes knowledge of Christ, approval, yes, this is true, and a personal trust in him, okay? Saving faith is trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life with God. Remember, God so loved the world that whosoever would believe in him, right, should not perish but have everlasting life. This is a full-fledged, wholehearted, sincere trust and faith. You are putting all of your eggs in this one basket. That's what a saving faith is. Now, that's the first element of our conversion, right? Is saving for faith and repentance, right? Now, we, I, I preached about repentance um, a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to get too deep into that, but just know that repentance is a heartfelt sorrow over your sin, right? And it's a renouncing of it and a sincere commitment to Follow Christ and to obey um, his commandments. So Acts twenty twenty one, Paul goes about and he says, look, my message is to solemnly testify to both Jews and Greeks of repentance to God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is Paul's message summed up. Repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. You have to have both. Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. He's talking about the Old Testament. When it wasn't fully known completely that Christ was going to come and what he was going to do and what he was going to be like, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Conversion is made up of a complete, full, saving faith in Jesus Christ. That is a knowledge of who he is, an approval of what he has done, and a full-fledged belief in him, but also a repentance of our sin. You put these two together and you have experienced conversion. So at this point, order of salvation, we understand we were elected before the foundation of the world to receive this salvation. At some point in our lives, an effectual call comes, usually through the preaching of the gospel. Regeneration occurs. Our spirits are made alive so that we can respond affirmatively to the gospel in faith and repentance, and we experience conversion. Now, after conversion, we are justified. Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. Right? This is Paul kind of explaining the order of salvation here in Romans chapter 8. Those whom he called, he justified. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And he declares us to be righteous in his sight. This, this teaching is everywhere. But Romans chapter 8, verse 1, I'm sorry, not verse 30, it's verse 1. Um, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. You've been considered justified before God. Romans 8, 33-34, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who can condemn? If God has said, not guilty. If God has looked at you and said, justified, who can say anything otherwise, right? 
Nobody. And so you see in this moment, in, in this act of justification, God considering you completely righteous, you see how the enemy has been overcome in that, right? Satan. You know what Satan means? Accuser. He is constantly accusing us. He's constantly trying to accuse us before God. Um, but you see how God's act of justif- justifying us, considering us not guilty, that completely robs him of any power he has to accuse us. It, see, we need to understand this. Because how many of us get down in the dumps because Satan is right there reminding us of something that we did? Or something that we're not, right? Don't listen to that. If you are in Christ, God considers you perfectly righteous. You've been justified. Now, this justification, and this is important to understand, this justification is a declaration, right? God is declaring you not not guilty. It is not an actual inherent reality within you. Now, let me explain. Uh, What I mean is that God doesn't actually make us inherently worthy of being justified, right? He just considers us justified. Look at this, Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned to him as righteousness. God justifies the ungodly, right? It's not like we are not guilty. We are guilty. We, we deserve hell, right? We deserve punishment for what we have done. But if we have faith in Christ, God looks over our sin and he justifies us ungodly. We are the ungodly, but he justifies us. So this is a declaration that you're not guilty. This isn't an actual reality. Now, Remember, we, we kind of talked about this um, last week, right? If God only forgives our sins, um, we're, we're just morally neutral, right? If, if he pays our debt and, we, and we're zero, right, on the ledger, then we're just morally neutral. There's nothing in us for God to condemn, but there's nothing in us for him to commend, right? There's nothing in us to punish, but there's nothing worthy of a reward either, right? We're just, we're just morally neutral. We have to be considered positively righteous before God. But if we are ungodly, right? And God says, Hey, not guilty. How, how do we, be, how do we become righteous before him? And the, the answer to that question is imputation, a big word called imputation. Um, re- remember, look here. Um, yeah. Romans four, three. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That word reckoned there, that's how we understand imputation. God credits to our account what Christ has done. Now, listen, there is a difference. And this is where I think a big confusion about this exists within the church. There is a huge difference between imputation and impartation, right? God does not impart the righteousness of Christ to you. It does not become a part of who you are right now, right? And we we all know this to be true. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. We still continue to sin even after we come to this saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, even after we become believers. We know that we still, I, I mess up every day, right? There is nothing existing within me right now that is perfectly righteous, it's not there, especially Christ's righteousness, who never sinned at once. That does not exist within me. But when God looks at my record of wrongs, he sees perfection. That's imputation, right? That's the difference between imputation and impartation. And again, Romans 4, 5. 
to the one who does not work but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned to him as righteousness. And how all of this works, this imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, Second Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sin imputed to Christ. He was considered, regarded as by God as having committed those sins. His righteousness imputed to us. We become that. So this is justification. This is how we are declared not guilty before God, but it's also how we are justified and redeemed, considered in a positive moral standing before the Lord. Been called before the foundation of the earth. Sometime in our life an effectual call comes. We are regenerated. We respond to the gospel in faith and repentance, resulting in conversion and justification before God. He, we are not guilty. Um, now, the next one. This one's short. It's going to be short and sweet. Adoption. Adoption is an act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. This occurs after our conversion, and it is an outcome of our saving faith. Beautiful verse um, that I don't have on the board here. (laughs) Um, John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, He gave them the right to be called children of God. That is an amazing scripture. If you receive Christ, if you believe in him, he gives you the right to be called a child of God. To be called anything less because his righteousness is credited to your account, right? Because of the act of justification. Because not only have your sins been forgiven, but God sees you in a positive light. He wants to reward you. He says, hey, you're one of mine now. You are holy, righteous, just like me. And you are pulled into my family. And to be called anything other than a child of God is a violation of your rights. Because you deserve this. What? Does that just like hit anybody else in the face like that does me? It's amazing. Now, by contrast, remember that those who do not receive him are referred to as children of wrath, right? And sons of disobedience. Um, we see that both in Ephesians chapter 2. In, in, in John 8, this is interesting. In John 8, um, the, the Jews tried to claim that God was their father, right? But Jesus looked at them and he said, if God were your father, you would love me. But you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. So if we are apart from the family of God, if we are not his children, we are children, we are children of wrath, sons of disobedience. Satan is our king. Um, and that is where our loyalties lie, apart from Christ. Um, gosh, where am I at? All right, Romans 8. This is beautiful here. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now you can see the implications of adoption for our lives here. So if we are children, then heirs. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the heir of all things, right? So if we are heirs of God 
and fellow heirs with Christ, everything Christ receives, we receive. There are several scriptures in, in the book of Hebrews that refer to Jesus Christ as our brother. Because we are children of God just like he is. Um, so now, think of everything that Christ receives. Right? Think of everything that Christ gets because of what he's done. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, given authority over all principalities powers of the air. Right? In Ephesians 3, Paul goes on to say, we also seated with him in the heavenly places. And we have the same exact authority. The resurrection that Christ got to experience, the reward for his obedience, hey, you get to come back to life and you get to live forever. We get that too. We receive that. That is part of our inheritance. Christ reigns in the kingdom to come, right? We also, as we'll look at in a couple of weeks, there are jobs that we have where we will be rulers of kingdoms and cities and all kinds of stuff. And I don't know the literal meaning of that, but it is a wonderful reward. Okay? Um, you see that. And now listen. If God has adopted you, if God has chosen you, and he's brought you into his family, you are not a burden to him. He specifically pointed you out and said, this one is mine. I want you. I'm going to clothe you. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm your father now. I'm your father. Adoption is beautiful. And you know, adoption is one of those things I, I don't think that the, the, the church really fully understands. Because, you know, okay, Craig Rochelle said this. He said, if you know who you are, then you will know what to do. And listen, if we are adopted into God's family and if we are his children, then we are going to be a people who are, are not afraid to, to rep our father, right? We're not going to be afraid. We're not going to be a people who are afraid of seeming strange before the world. Okay. Um, but, but you see that that is the case in a lot of people. A lot of people, they don't want to speak up. And they don't want to share their faith with anybody. They don't want to um, go out and be the hands and feet of Jesus that we've been called to do. You see a lot of apathetic Christians in our churches. And it's because they don't realize who they are. They don't understand that they are children of God. And they've been called into a purpose that is greater than their own. Adoption is key. If we are going to faithfully live out what we know that we're supposed to be doing, we have to understand what we've been brought into. And, and I'm afraid that we don't. Um, anyway, first John chapter three, verses one through two, see what love the father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are beloved. We are God's children. Now we are not Satan's children. God is our father. and He's a good, good father. So on this journey that we've been on, we understand we've been elected before the foundation of the earth to receive salvation. Effectual call, call comes in our lives. We are regenerated so that we can respond in repentance and faith, resulting in conversion. And that conversion entitles us to be justified before God and to be adopted into his family. And then we enter the process of sanctification. Right. So now after all this has happened, we begin. This is where we are now. OK. Sanctification. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man. OK. Working together that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Now, there are three stages to sanctification. The first stage is we understand that sanctification has a definite beginning at our regeneration. So the moment that you're regenerated, that's when your sanctification begins. See this in Titus 3, 5. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So this renewal 
renewing that goes on in our hearts starts right at regeneration, wrought by the Holy Spirit. Romans six nineteen. just as you once yielded your members to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now yield your members to righteousness for your sanctification. Right? So this is, this is the second stage of sanctification. This is where we understand that sanctification increases throughout our life, and we're very active in that process, right? So it's interesting, the, the parallel that Paul draws here. He says, hey, remember before you were saved. You remember how you yielded your members to sin? How you just gave yourself to it? How you just submitted to sin, and you just poured your heart out for sin? Remember how you did that? All right, so now do that for righteousness. Just Just surrender yourself to it. Just give yourself to this righteousness. Interesting illustration that he makes there. Second Corinthians three eighteen. This is beautiful. Put on the new nature, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This, this shows us that, that sanctification is not only a process of the things that we do, right? It's not only just a renewal of our actions, but it's a renewal of our minds. We're being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. Second Corinthians uh, three eighteen. That, that's not Second Corinthians three eighteen. That's Colossians three ten. Second Corinthians three eighteen. Again, I apologize. I don't have a slide here, but be- beautiful passage. Paul um, talks about how the the veil in the temple right was split. And so now we have ready access to God, right? And he says, hey, this is similar to Moses in the Old Testament. Whenever he had to go visit God and he came down from the mountain, he had to wear a veil over his face because he was reflecting the glory of God so much that people couldn't stand to look at him, right? And then after that, he says, the veil has been torn for us. So we can see the glory of God directly. And then he says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding Christ in his fullness are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. That's sanctification. That's the process that we're talking about being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. If you want to grow in your walk with Christ, pursue Christ. If you want to be made more like him, if you want to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next, behold the glory of the Lord. You do that by reading scripture. You do that by praying, right? You do that by being obedient to him. You you remember uh, Jesus said, hey, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus, now, (laughs) Jesus was not looking at his disciples and be like, hey, and now if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments, right? No, he says, look, hey, hey, I know that you want to keep my commandments. Listen, if you will love me, okay, then you will keep my commandments. If you will consider me as a treasure and you will give me your heart and you will love me, if you will do this, you will keep my commandments. You won't disappoint me if you will love me, right? That's the attitude that Jesus Christ says that in. So if we're going to experience sanctification, uh, we, we have to pursue Christ, right? Sanctification is completed at our death for our souls, right? We understand that our souls Whenever we die, um, we, they depart and they're with the Lord, right? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, that's what Paul says. Um, and then our bodies are completely sanctified at our resurrection, at the second coming of Jesus Christ, which we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. But for now, I want to show you this chart to kind of help explain the, uh, the sanctification process. So... Right here, you're not a Christian, right? And you're a slave to sin. And yeah, you know, you can kind of do some good things, but oh, you fail. And, and you know, even as a non-Christian, you can do good things, right? But something happens at conversion, shoot. 
You're growing in holiness. That's a big step that you take, right? And then all throughout your life as a Christian, this is the Christian life, you're going to improve. But, hey, sometimes you backslide, right? You know, it's not continual, just constant improvement. Sometimes you're going to mess up, you know, and, and this may happen at different points in your life. You know, some seasons of life you may grow more than others, but not always. But then at death, you are transferred into perfect holiness where you will continue forever. This is the process of sanctification, our initial conversion and our regeneration that we talked about earlier. And then throughout our life, we're made more and more like Christ. And then our death, we will be like him, for we will see him as he truly is, Scripture says. We are elected by God. We receive the effectual call. We're regenerated, responded, repentance and faith, resulting in our justification and our adoption. And then we embark on the journey of sanctification. That's where we are all at right now. Now, how do we know that we will persevere into the end? This is the doctrine of perseverance. Perseverance of the saints means that all of those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere into the end have been truly born again. Now, I understand that this is a tender issue. Okay. When I read that, I'm sure every single one of us here thought of somebody that we know that maybe they made a profession of faith whenever they were 12 years old at church camp or whatever, but ever since then, just they haven't lived a life devoted to Christ. I know people like that, and I'm sure you do too. And listen, I know that that may be people very, very close to you. All right. So I'm, I'm approaching this tenderly. Okay. I want to show you what the Bible says about persevering until the end and why this is important. First off, just know that eternal life is truly eternal, right? If you could lose it, it was never eternal. So already from the get-go, when Jesus comes and says, hey, you can have eternal life. Whoever believes in me will not perish, but have eternal life. As soon as you receive it, it's eternal. It's never going to go away, right? So that's the first indicator that we know that those who receive this life, they're going to persevere into the end because it is eternal life. It never goes away. Uh, but also we see Philippians 1, six that we should be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, that's God, right, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. We see that our sanctification is complete whenever Christ returns, right, or whenever we die. This is assuring us that God who began this work, he's not going to stop it. He's going to see it through until the day of Christ. That that's the nature of God. He wouldn't do anything other than that. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him you also, who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and have believed in him, listen to this, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Upon your salvation you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And it is guaranteed that you will receive your inheritance. And will we receive that inheritance? When Christ returns. So you are guaranteed to persevere until the end. You're not going to fall away. Now, only, so all those who are truly born again will persevere until the end. We've seen that. But also, only those who persevere to the end have truly been born again. John 8, 31-32, Jesus then said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word then you are truly my disciples. And what Jesus is talking about is he's saying, if you continue to live a life of obedience to my commands, even after this, then you will truly be my disciples. Matthew 10, 22, he, Jesus' words, he who endures to the end will be saved. 
He who endures to the end. Hebrews 3.14. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. If we hold it firm until the end. Now, what about those people that we thought of earlier? They've showed some signs. They showed signs of conversion, right? Um, but they've since fallen away. You know, what about, what about those people? First off, Romans 8, 38 through 39 tells us that. We'll just read it. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can do that. Not even ourselves. Right? We cannot do that. First John 2, 19. This is the scripture that applies to those people that you were thinking about. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, so that it might be plain that they all are not of us. This is the person that you're thinking of that at one point in their life, yeah, they showed some kind of signs of conversion, but they've since fallen away. And I know, I know, I have hoped against hope that what happened was true. But the clear teaching of Scripture is that if they don't persevere until the end, it never was genuine. It never was real. And, and th- there's more to say about this too. And in Galatians, and, and I'm sorry, in Galatians and Second Corinthians, Paul makes many mentions to the, the false brethren that have come into the fold. Uh, those who appear to be saved, those who appear to be believers, but they're not. Now, remember the, the, the parable of the, um, the, the soils, right? There was the seed that fell in the rocky soil and the, it, it, it sprouted and it shot up. Right. Um, But then a storm came and it just blew it away. Jesus, when he is interpreting that, he says, he says, this is like people that hear the word and they immediately receive it with joy. Right. But they have no root. They they have no root in themselves because it's rocky soil. So those roots can't get down deep and they endure for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Jesus knew that this was going to happen. He knew that there was going to be some people who, yes, yeah, I will receive Christ. I believe the gospel. I, I'm receiving this. But then something happens and, and they fall away. Jesus spoke about this. Adrian Rogers, if you guys know who he is, he, he's got a famous little quote. He said, faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. Right? Um, now, how do you know? that you're going to persevere to the end. How do you know that you're not one of the people that has fallen onto the rocky soil and is shot up and, and temporarily, yeah, you're, you're doing it, but if something happens what, and you go away, how do you know that you're going to persevere to the end? Now, look at the trajectory of your life, okay? Look at the trajectory of your life. Or if you're, if you're wondering about a loved one, that shows these kinds of signs and symptoms, look at the trajectory of their life. Now, I'm not talking about yesterday, or the last week. I'm talking about over years or, or however long they claim to have been a believer. What is the trajectory? Now, remember, we looked at that sanctification process. We know that there's times where we're going we're gonna to fall, we're going to backslide, and we're, we're not going to be perfectly obedient and everything, right? We know that those times are going to come. But what is the trajectory that they're on and that you're on? Do you have a present trust in Christ for your salvation? Presently, right now, do you trust Christ for your salvation? In addition to that, is there evidence 
of a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in your heart? Okay, are you, do you find yourself longing for the things of God more? Do you find, your, you find yourself pursuing righteousness and, and, and not wanting anything to do with the world? Is there evidence of regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in your heart? Are you a new creation? Are you a different person? And do you see a long-term pattern of growth in your Christian life? Do you see that? Do you see progression? Or are you just psh, stagnant? You've just been sitting there. Um, or you've completely lost it. Um, those questions and being completely honest with yourself and those that you're worried about will give you a good indication of where you're at spiritually and what you need to do in regards to the gospel. Okay, I'm glad that's done. Order of salvation. Election. We are elected before the foundation of the world. We are issued an effectual call. And God regenerates us so that we can respond in repentance and faith, resulting in conversion. We're then considered justified by God and we are adopted into his family. We embark upon the journey of sanctification and we know that we will persevere into the end if we have truly been born of God. And then at the end of it all, glorification. Glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ returns and raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and reunites them with their souls and changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. Now, pretty much the the vast majority of teaching over this issue right here is found in one chapter in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at a few verses, but I would encourage every single one of you to go and just read the whole chapter. It is phenomenal. It is wonderful. But 1 Corinthians 15 is where we get a lot of this doctrine from. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 to 23. So also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. He's talking about resurrection, right? Um, all will be made alive. Christ was made alive first, right? We know he's been resurrected. He's not in the tomb anymore, and he's reigning in heaven. Our resurrection is going to come now of our bodies. Our souls go to be with the Lord, right? But the resurrection of our bodies, complete glorification, will happen whenever Christ returns, according to this here. 1 Corinthians 15, 51-52. Lo, or listen, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. There are some of us, maybe some of us alive right now, but there will be some people alive whenever Christ returns that have placed their faith in him. Right? So that's why he says, we're not all going to sleep. We're not all going to die, but every single one of us, when he returns, we're going to be changed, raised into imperishable bodies twinkling of an eye it says and then also philippians 3 21 but our commonwealth is in heaven and from it we await a savior the lord jesus christ who will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power which enables him even to subject all things to himself now think about that right the same power that enables christ to say everything is in subjection under my feet i am lord i am ruler of it all i'm lord and ruler over you by that same power he says no I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to raise you up and you're going to stand here next to me. You're going to be raised into a glorious body just like mine. You're going to reign with me here. I'm not going to use this power of subjection that I have over you to subject you. I'm going to raise you up. Beautiful.
Now, what is the nature of our bodies? Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What is sown is perishable. So the body that we have now is perishable, right? But what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. Right now we are corrupted by sin. We are dishonorable vessels, right? It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a physical body is raised a spiritual body. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, imperishable. We're, we're, we are um, sown perishable, raised imperishable. No sickness, right? No death, no aging. That's going to be the nature of the body. We are raised in glory, right? Sinless. Beautiful, inherently righteous at that point. We are raised in power. We will have full, complete power and strength to do all that will be required of us. We fail now to be completely obedient because a lot of times we don't have the strength to do so. But there we will be raised in strength. Weakness will be no more. We will be able to faithfully and completely serve him in every single way that he requires of us. We are sown a physical body. We are raised a spiritual body now. In Pauline writing, in, in a lot of Paul's writing in the scriptures, he rarely uses the term spiritual to mean like non-physical, right? Instead, what he means when he uses the word spiritual is consistent with the character and activity of the Holy Spirit. So like like if somebody says, hey, that, that guy's a godly person, he's a spiritual person. He is in tune with the spirit, right? That's what he means here whenever it says that we will be raised a spiritual body. Right now, we are not in tune with the spirit. Completely. Some of us are, and, and we can be at times. But perfectly in step with the Spirit and in tune? No, we're not. Sin corrupts that. But then we'll be raised spiritual body. Um, perfectly pleasing to the Lord. Perfectly in tune with the Holy Spirit. Um, this is glorification. This is everything that we are longing for right now. We will attain. This is the end of our salvation. Once we get to this state, it's done. It's finished. We don't have to fight through sanctification anymore. We don't have to worry about if we're going to persevere anymore. It is done. It is finished. So this is the entire order of salvation. Um, every single one of us, if we are in Christ, experience every single one of these steps, every single one of these stages. This is, this is again, 30,000 foot view um, of each one of these stages in our salvation. Um, and, and I don't know about you, but man, I'm grateful. I'm going to understand everything that Christ has done, that God has done, the links that he took to redeem me. I'm overwhelmed.